0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquadamia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Laughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And today we have another species spotlight episode for you. In this, in this conversation, I mistakenly said that this was our first species spotlight of the year. I think I corrected myself, but um, this is our second species spotlight and we are focusing on eels today, specifically the American eel, but we also talk about um, the Japanese eel the European eel, and the Australian eel. But um, we are sitting down with Sarah Rademacher from American Unagi, and uh, she is raising eel here in Maine, and she gets into all different aspects of this species, biology, physiology, kind of behaviors, uh, the environments that they live in and that they grow in, her production methods, production methods overseas, the marketplace, local and global, some products, like all kinds of stuff. It's a really cool conversation. I really think you're going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, I want to remind everybody, as I always do, to please make sure that you are subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts. So every time a new episode comes
1: out, it will automatically be downloaded directly to your device. And we are on Twitter. You can give us a follow at Pod. if you want to contact the podcast for any reason. You want to be a sponsor, you have topic suggestions, you want to be a guest, you can do all that on our online form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. That's right. Leave us a rating and
0: review wherever you listen. It really helps us out, and uh, we appreciate everybody that's already done that. Thank you so much. Enjoy this conversation that we had with Sarah, and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast.
1: Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood.
0: This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Academia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. All right, we are sitting down today with sarah rademaker from american unagi and if that name sounds familiar it's because she sat down with us she actually came and found us at our booth at cena this year Mm -hmm. boston seafood show and uh came and sat down and talked to us about raising eels and we said well we haven't done a species spotlight episode this year yet let's do one with eels and let's get the person who claims that she can talk about eels for hours on end so (laughs) welcome sarah are you ready to talk about eels
2: always always ready
0: awesome so uh like i said this is a species spotlight episode so we're going to get into the ins and outs of eels biology physiology life stages and you know the production methods capture methods all that kind of stuff marketplace but before we do that i want to as we always do we want to meet our guests so sarah can you give us a little background kind of who you are and how you got to what you're doing now and, um, just kind of let our listeners know who they're hearing from.
2: Yeah. So, um, my name's Sarah Rademacher. I am an aquaculturist. Um, I've spent 20 years, uh, in the aquaculture industry and never thought when I was younger, I was going to be an eel farmer, but a series of events and paths ended up leading me here. And, um, I couldn't see myself anywhere else now. Um, it's a really amazing species, and I am excited to talk to all of you about it.
0: Right on. Well, let's let's talk about it. Let's get right into it. Uh, I think our last did did we do it? Was shrimp this year? Actually, is this our second species spotlight?
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh,
0: so I was mistaken. So we have done species spotlight, but we did shrimp this year, but we haven't done finfish. And I the, there's two things that I know about eels. One is that they're delicious in sushi. Agreed. <laughs> and, <laughs> Two has two has something to do with um with standards and certification, so I'm going to bring that up later. But let's talk about what an eel is. Give us the basic rundown of like what are we talking about when we look at eels? Because there's so many different types of eels, right? I think some people are going to think like electric eel, which I think is not actually technically an eel, or <laughs> or moray eels, or you know, there's a lot of different types of fish that people may think of. But when we're talking about eels in the seafood realm, what are we talking about? What makes them different from some of the other species? And then let's just get into a conversation about kind of their biology and where they stand.
2: Yeah. So the species that we work with is anguilla rostrata, and it's part of a larger group of eels just known as the anguilla species. They're um, what make up unagi. So unagi is a Japanese word for freshwater eel. And um, this is a species of eel that's catadromous. So they're all born out in the ocean and then spend their... Most of them spend their adult lives in freshwater. So anguilla, anguilla, anguilla Jibonica. Um, There's about 15 to 18 species, depending on who you talk to across the world, that fall into this category.
0: And what is a, co- a common name? Is that the glass eel or am I thinking of something else?
2: Well, our eel, it, uh, that's part of its life cycle is called a glass eel or elver, but okay. the species overall oh, is just called the American eel. And um, in Europe, they call it the European eel, which is anguilla, anguilla um the eel out of japan is called the japanese eel and it's uh anguilla japonica um and then the other well known commercial species is anguilla australis which is the australian eel
0: no, they keep it simple yeah. the world i like it <laughs> they
2: do indeed <laughs> yeah
0: well that's interesting because I've always kind of heard these this term glass eel thrown around but you said that's more of a life stage. What are the different life stages of an American eel?
2: Yeah, so they have a crazy life cycle. Um they're catadromous, so they're opposite of the salmon who are all born in freshwater. So every single eel, you know, of those species I mentioned to are all born out in the ocean and there's a whole crazy backstory to that mystery, but essentially they're they're born out in these the middle of the ocean they are first hatched into what's called a leptocephali which is a a little larval stage and it looks almost like a transparent little willow leaf and for the longest time people didn't even realize this was an actual eel species so those little babies Drift on the currents, so they don't know if they're going to land. You know, with our American species, they can land maybe top of South America, they can end up in the Gulf um, Coasts, or they can end up all the way up into Greenland and the um, Northern Canada. So they they drift on the ocean in that leptocephali stage, and then when they get close to um, the continental shelves in in those areas and into um, areas where there's fresh water, they metamorphize into glass eels. So they change and kind of go from that flat looking eel into a glass eel stage, which is clear, transparent. And this is what makes up our fishery in Maine.
1: So is this uh, what I imagine is thousands upon thousands of these and then predators come in and need a bunch of them and then the lucky few make it to the second stage of their life? Is that kind of accurate or?
2: um? Uh, uh, they actually they come into at least up in Maine they come in um in the very early spring they're actually one of the few the first kind of migratory species to land and really signal the change in spring so they're um when they're coming in it's it's absolutely by the millions but they kind of sneak in before um, a lot of the other predators are here, so they come in okay. um, in really, really strong numbers up into the rivers. But you are right that like this is a stage that um, experiences kind of the highest mortality in the wild. So of those little eels that come in only about one percent, um maybe a little bit more, that's mm-hmm. one of those unknowns uh, end up surviving to uh, adulthood. so so once those glass eels come in, they They then will land um, into freshwater. You know, they can end up, some of them actually never end up coming into freshwater. They'll spend their entire lives in saltwater marshes or saltwater um, areas, but they become yellow eels. So they get pigmented. Um, They look, you know, at that point, what, you know, people think of when they think of an American eel and that's where they can spend most of their adult lives, which is anywhere from a few years to upwards of more than 30 years in northern climates. Uh, and then at some point, you know, Mother Nature and those eels decide they want to become parents and um, they go through one more big um, life change and they become silver eels. So they are they get ready to go on that journey back to um, you know, that was mystery spots in the ocean. So they become silver, their eyes get big, and they actually will um, stop eating and they'll uh, like absorb their digestive tract. So they get one shot to breed um, and they put all of their energy into that last journey out.
0: Surprisingly similar to salmon, just the opposite. Right?
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. Yep. Yeah. So let's, let's talk size. What are, how big are the glass eels that are coming in? And then once they kind of metamorphosize into this next stage, the American, eel, the yellow eel, mm-hmm. and then the silver eel, kind of what are we looking at size wise for those different um, stages?
2: Um, so as a farmer, I typically work in grams and kilos. Um, so to just, just preface uh, my size issues with that. So when they, um, <laughs> when our eels come in and main, they're, they're really small. Um, they're about the size of a toothpick and completely clear. So Most Mm -hmm. of our eels weigh in. So
0: really easy to find. Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but what's, (laughs) what's wild is so eels, um, and this is what makes them really great with farming is they, um, they like to group up together and they almost, it's bizarre. Like you talk to some of the harvesters who see the eel, um, eel migration up close and are watching it regularly. These fish almost work as one organism. It's, really wild so they'll come in it's not just a single little glass eel it's hundreds of thousands of them um moving up our coast and they'll climb up the sides of dams up um you know mossy areas on rocks and they almost look like one giant eel that's you know moving up um up these rivers and uh, streams
1: oh my god something of a marvel comic
0: i've seen that movie <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah and okay. yeah and then so, when they when they were so I, sorry like you can see i get excited about this because they are just yeah no. super cool but like when they aren't migrating so they move with the tides when they're fished and we can jump into that later but the um they like if if you come into maine in the spring or or actually anywhere along the coast um you know again gulf of mexico uh they're they're moving in those waters You'll see piles of little eels they hang out together. they'll sit in little eel piles with their heads poking out um they uh they like to like to group
0: up together. That's wild, so then when they hit that yellow you said yellow eel right? I heard that correctly. yeah, is that
1: only when they're in the salt water,
0: yeah, is that only when they're in the salt when they stay in salt water? I was confused about that as well
2: no, that's the that's the, the yellow eel stages is, is that adult version of their life cycle, and they can live. Um, okay. In a variety of different circumstances, but it's when they become completely pigmented and and look like the adult form.
0: Right? Are they actually yellow, or is that just the name?
2: I they they do have a. I'm
0: <laughs> showing my total <laughs> ignorance with eels. I I know nothing about eels. No, clearly. no, no.
2: That most of them do have a little bit of a yellowish tint, but there's color variations. You know, we see it on the farm all the time. So.
0: All right. So what what size are, are they? How big are they? They're not toothpick size anymore. Uh, How big are they when they're in that yellow eel stage?
2: They're they're a little bit larger, um, but they're mostly it's you know they they look like little eels and they fill out um, and they're not too much bigger than that glass eel stage. So when that um, metamorphosis that change happens, so I would say you know there may be maybe double the size of glass eels. So, you know, you're talking 0. 0.2 grams to jump into 0. 0.4 yeah. grams. So not not a big, they're still really pretty small when they enter that stage.
0: How how big do they get total by the time, like by the time you're like harvesting and you're ready to sell?
2: Well, it's, you know, they, they hit a, a variety of different sizes. The males are typically smaller. The females can get massive. Um, but the adult size can range from, you know, a, uh, quarter of a pound up to several pounds for female
0: eels okay interesting so at, at what stage when we're talking about production you are collecting them as in the glass eel stage and then you're growing them out well into the yellow eel stage correct
2: yeah yeah so our we work with local harvesters so we can't actually fish eels ourselves so we have to purchase them from um, glass eel harvesters along the coast of maine. Those supply our farm, we bring them in. They're completely transparent, and um, and then we grow them out until they're between a quarter pound and typically a pound is what we target for our
1: farm.
0: Okay, and then so walk us through that process. You bring the how, how? are you growing
1: them out? How are you? Wait, I gotta oh. back up. <laughs> What's the process? For... <laughs> I'm just trying to envision this. So you're buying these the at the glass eel stage. You're you're purchasing those. To bring them to your farm. How are the people you're purchasing them from? What's the process for capturing them them or collecting them? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, the eel fishery in Maine, it's, it's pretty unique in that there's um, Maine is one of only two states that have the ability to fish for glass eels and um, are legally allowed to, but eels and American eels actually are found throughout the continental United States. So basically from the Mississippi river, um, east any body of water river stream lake that that ends up in the atlantic can have eels so massive range um but it's only in wow. maine and south carolina that there's a glass eel fishery for this life stage so in maine
0: why, why why is that is that because there's just such a abundance of them that come in um or well, like why why is that limited to those two states
2: well i i there's, there's a long history. So the eel fishery, um, for the glass eel stage really started to develop in the late seventies. And that's when aquaculture of eels in China really started to, to blow up. Um, and there used to be a fishery up and down the coast of the U S but, uh, it's a fishery that happens at night. It happens, um, you know, in the springtime and oftentimes at the mouths of these rivers. So, A lot of the states that don't depend on their natural resources like we do in Maine um, ended up not wanting to support this fishery or in some cases there's laws against um, eel fishing in those areas. Um, The two places that ended up with an eel fishery for glass eels is South Carolina and Maine. And those are both states that rely heavily on their marine economies um, as, you know, Mm pre-rural states. So that to me is a lot of the reasons why, you know, Maine kept its fishery and has its fishery is, you know, we we depend on our natural resources for our economy here. So, um, Yeah. yeah. okay. Yeah. So, and but, you and
0: you are you're one of the only eel grow out farms in Maine, correct?
2: I am the only eel farm. You're the Maine. only
0: one. <laughs> yeah. So, most of those eels that are collected in Maine are those shipped off to Japan.
2: Um, actually, it's China. So the major more, yeah, the majority of our eel fishery ends up in China. Um, um on okay. pond farms that are happening there. Interesting. Yeah. So, I, so, so yeah. do
0: you? Do you think that you, um, are getting like a good deal on these glass eels because they don't need to be shipped all the way to China? Like, are, are, are they paying more over there to get them shipped over?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things that happen when you are moving, um, a large volume of live fish over like that is when we work directly with the harvesters, um, it ultimately, we've got a direct connection to that fishery. Um, there's less middlemen. We, um, uh, we don't lose very many eels because, you know, there's one person transporting, there's one person handling those those fish before they come into ours. When you have to, you know, move live products and you're going through, you know, fishermen to a buyer, to an exporter, to um, an overseas, you know, fish house distribution center, then to a farm, you know, each of those stages, everybody's taking a cut, you know, you have potential losses. So in terms of a resource use, I think we're doing a better job of it and having a direct relationship with, um, with the fishery.
0: Great. So the fishermen probably love having your business, huh?
2: Yeah. Well, it's, I think, um, there, a lot of the harvesters we work with, um, are pretty pumped to be connected to the farm and, um, and are just as excited about, uh, seeing their eels grow out here versus, you know, just kind of disappearing from our coast.
1: Somewhere else.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's cool. We're going to talk more about the farm in a little bit, but I want to know. I guess we could talk about it now, Bert, because we
2: the fishery. I,
0: I want to know. Sorry, say that again. Oh,
2: I was going to say there's that fishery. I didn't even get to tell you how they they fish for them. We didn't even get to that part.
1: Oh, I was going to interrupt Sean before he finished that what he was about to say, so we <laughs> could get back see, to I, my original I, question. I went there. to
0: school for aquaculture, so I'm like I'm thinking about the system and how you're raising these fish in in <laughs> at your farm. But Shh, where'd you go right. to school, Sean? You're right, Justin. Uh, I went to the University of Rhode Island.
2: Okay. I, I went down to Auburn. My um production manager also did Auburn. Um, oh. I don't hear a, many people yeah. who say they went to school for aquaculture. That's why I ask.
0: So. Yeah, there's not there's there were there were literally ones of us uh, yeah. when I was in school there. I think I think there were eight aquaculture students in my mm. freshman class. So yeah. and then that that number went down <laughs> as the years went on. But um you're absolutely right, Justin. We are going to get there. I'm a, I'm a visual
1: learner, so I'm trying to envision this whole process. Let's let's get into how these are captured. You're right.
0: Thank you. No, thank <laughs> yeah. you. I mean, this is why I keep you around.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's good to have people who keep you in line. Um, so the eel fishery, there's two methods that are permitted in Maine for catching eels. Um, the first one is a fike net. So that's... Um, a big uh, net that's set along the coast with, you know, usually one part is on and one part's in the water. And it's a Y shaped net with a cod end that um, the eels get funneled down into the end. Um, That's usually placed at the mouths of rivers. So when the tide comes up and it's nighttime, the eels will kind of move in with the tide and start climbing up um, the rivers when it's dark and cool and safe. So the fishermen, you know, are trying to catch them on that migration up, up the river. The other way that um, fishermen can be uh, permitted to fish for the eels is just with a dip net. And this is essentially like an aquarium net on a stick. Um, So that uh, fishermen can then just kind of go, you know, usually they're at at night with a headlamp on and they're just, you know, dipping um, the eels as they're moving them out. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, some fishermen like that because it allows them uh, um, just adaptability. Uh, then the other folks, you know, they're really um, their catch is determinant on the tides. So, you know, they have yeah. to um, check their their net, you know, when it's exposed at low tide and that becomes kind of uh, a driver to their day to day.
0: I've going to look up like there's got to be videos of capturing eels somewhere online. I got it. That's, that's it's super interesting.
2: Yeah, no and it's um you know before I, I um started building my business out the fishery um was actually uh didn't have a quota system uh it was you know hit the headlines a lot for it being a cash business and you know it was just nuts but um the state you know in when the e- value of eels jumped which it went from you know a few hundred dollars to over 2000 dollars a pound um the state moved very quickly to put in uh, a really strong regulation and monitoring system. So there's now a quota set in place. Every single fisherman um, is licensed and new licenses are very, very rare. Um, mm-hmm. And each fisherman has a set amount of quota. That is, um, it's, it's actually a really cool management system. They have like a swipe card system. So I, as a buyer, have like a credit card swiper, and I, when a fisherman sells their quota to me, I swipe their quota card. All the information on the volume down to a tenth of a pound um, goes into a system, and that gives not only me responsibility of these eels and accountability to those eels, but the state gets you know every every day they have up to date information on on what yeah. part of the quota has been caught, who's caught it, you know where the fishery is. Um, sitting at. So it's pretty cool.
0: That is cool. Have you ever thought about like w- w- when you initially got into this, did you think like that you were g- also going to be trying to get a license and go out there and catch your own?
2: I, I, I'm an aquaculturist. I, 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 I was very <laughs> upfront with with the harvesters too. I was like, I'm not looking to fish eels. Like that's, you guys know how to do that. I, I know how to grow fish. So I'm, uh, I'm sticking to that.
0: Nice. All right. So you go swipe your card, reserve your fish. And then they, how do they bring them over? Do they just put them in big tanks and ship and truck them over?
2: Yeah. So we don't have to
0: ship them across the sea.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So most of the harvesters um, use coolers to hold their eels um, with air stones or oxygen. Um, And then those folks, um, once they've caught a volume that they're comfortable with, they'll bring them over to our farm. We swipe them into a holding system. And then um, once we're ready to roll, we actually, um, and this is, you know, speaks to the regular rate. Regulation within the fishery is, um, when we move our eels onto the farm, you know, the Department of Marine Resources, uh, are there to see us weigh those fish in. So, um, the same way that any fish leaving the state, there's actually a weigh in process when they're exported to. So, um, the, the state of Maine takes the regular regulation of this fishery very, very seriously. So, um, and, you know, that helps support our business and making sure that we have yields for the future.
0: Great.
1: So it looked like you had some- no, I was just thinking like it's super important. And th- when you say the cost goes from a few hundred dollars to, to $2,000 or more, you could see a lot of people trying to take advantage of that. And, and mismanagement and lack of regulations could have really done some, a, a lot more harm than good. Yeah, it sounds yeah, like they jumped on it pretty quick. That's good.
2: Yeah. So, yep.
1: What What's the process
0: for grow out? Once you get them to your farm, kind of. I know you probably have some, you know, some secrets that you don't want to share. But <laughs> I'd love, I'd love to hear kind of the general process for how you grow and how you grow out these eels. How long mm-hmm. it takes. How you know when they're ready for harvest, and then kind of what happens post harvest.
2: Yeah. So, um, so eels. You know, because we're dealing with a wild caught fishery. Um, And it's a really long grow out time. So to grow our eels to market, it's anywhere from seven months to two years. And within any given year class, you're going to have some fish that reach market really quick and some that take longer. So on our farm at any given time, you have an overlap of up to three year classes. So Mm -hmm. the biggest, most important thing is on each year class when they come in is, is keeping those fish isolated, making sure um, the farm is, you know, has biosecurity protocols to make sure that that you know those fish stay healthy throughout their life cycle so we when we bring in our eels they actually go into a separate system to start that's our glacial system and that's where we do kind of all the initial grow out until they're about five grams and then they go out to the larger part of our farm so a lot of the early stage um, you know we can when right when they come into the river that's tends to be when we have the most risk, um, and the most potential loss, but we aim to have less than 10% mortality, um, through that phase of our, um, production cycle. So it's still a really, really good use of, of a natural resource like that.
0: And your, your facility, is it, is that a RAS system?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I? I? Oh okay. yeah. No, that, that was, um, I love aquaculture. You like having
0: that control. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I, you know, I've done, I've done pond farming, I've done oyster farming, I've done algae farming, um, but I um, have always loved uh, recirculating systems Um, mostly, you know, for not only optimizing growing conditions for the organism that you're working with, but also, you know, in utilizing, again, coming back to that resource idea, like our inputs and our outputs and, you know, that's a really cool thing when it comes to farming is making things super efficient, and that's what I love about r a s systems
0: yeah and and I think you'll get this there's something about the, like a system like this, and this is gonna be so nerdy for me um but when you know when I was in school we we had to design and build a couple of small little systems for like single tank systems and stuff, and there's something about like putting everything together, putting all the pipes together and the pumps and all the different and and like it when it works. Mm-hmm. there's this feeling that is really hard to describe. It just, it makes you feel really, really good when you, when it starts to work when the water's flowing and the filters are on and everything, it's just like, you feel like you have such control over what you're doing. And I'm sure you, you understand the feeling that I'm getting at, right? You don't get that with a pond system.
2: Yeah. You know, well, You know. know. Yeah. And it's, it's a long-term investment. Like when you get a system that operates and is operating really well and like it's, It's really cool when you have an established biofilter, which this, you know, gets really nerdy Mm -hmm. with the land-based is how good your fish grow when you have kind of everything aligned um, and everything kind of tuned just right. It's, it's really rewarding. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, we have a, we have a land-based system. Um, It's uh, eels are, what's cool with eels is they've been grown in land-based aquaculture since like the 1980s. Um, The Dutch were doing it and really developing, um, the systems for these fish. And we really, we looked to them to see what, what they've been doing, what worked and, and brought, um, that system design here.
0: So how, how are they raised in like China and Japan? How are they, are they grown differently or are those mostly land-based systems as well?
2: No, they're, each of those regions actually grow them differently. So, um, in most of China, they're doing pond aquaculture. So that's kind of, you know, small ponds, large ponds, you know, shallow, um, uh, under that in Japan, they do, um, kind of a combo. It's actually, a lot of them are in greenhouses. So it's, Mm. it's like a pond, but you've got a little bit more control and they're in greenhouses, um, with aeration. So it all, it sometimes reminds me a little bit of like, uh, shrimp farming where they've got, um, covered ponds. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. Do you know how they do it in Australia? Um, Australia, I don't think that they're doing much farming yet. Um, I think they've made some attempts, but I'm not, um, as far as I'm aware. I'm just going by, by the different
0: species names that we (laughs) discussed earlier. (laughs) It just kind of assumed. Um, so that's good. That's, it's, that's cool that there's a lot of different methods for, for raising it. And, you know, we have listeners all over the world, so I'm sure they'd be interested to hear that. Maybe there's someone in China who's thinking, oh, maybe we can, you know, develop a RAS system for this. Um, that might be. You know, this is why we do this, Justin. Yeah, you know. well,
2: and there's and there's definitely so. <laughs> you're seeing more um, eel systems, even in in Asia, move towards land based systems with eels. Again, it's control. You know, when there's uncertainties with climate and shifts like that, um, there's mm-hmm. uh, a lot more of a desire to control what we can where we can with farming.
0: Yeah, and if you have the investment to be able to to meet the kind of financial challenges with it then it's definitely the way to go I think because because of that control that you have over the environment and everything so very cool uh, okay what about harvest how do how do you harvest these things and then what do you do with them
2: um, so we uh, you know our our eels they ha- they have a variable time to market so what ends up happening is um, you know as we grow our farm in production we're essentially doing weekly harvest um, year round so Uh, we just, we pull off those nice plump fat eels, uh, every single week to, to get ready to process and send to market. So,
0: so how do you, how do you grade them? And and like, do you have machinery that helps you kind of separate (laughs) them by size or do you just go in and just pick them out?
2: Um, early on. So, you know, when we first started the business, everything was done by hand. So we were, you know, scooping out the fish, hand sorting and grading, um, Now we're using, you know, a grater and sorters and we actually, you know, fish pump everything. And, um, and Mm -hmm. eels are, they're, they're really, I've, I've worked with oysters. I've worked with tilapia in Africa, and these are some of the toughest fish I've ever worked with. Like we'll, we'll grade them, move them, harvest them, stock them back in the tanks and they start eating right away. They don't
0: care. Wow. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. (laughs) I would imagine that would be the attitude of an eel. Yeah. Like just based on I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> don't know.
2: Yeah. They're they're That's... really, really beautiful fish to 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 work with on the production sense, but also on the marketing side and and the products they end up in. It's it's a pretty beautiful fish overall. Although I, I know a lot of people. Perfect transition. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you you teed me up, Sarah. You you know what's coming next. So let's talk about the marketplace. Let's talk about uh <clears throat> global and kind of local because you are in Maine. And I I would imagine that the the demand for eel here in Maine is probably pretty good, but may not be like what the demand is in Asia or other places. So what what are we looking at for on a local level, the marketplace, how it works, kind of what you know, what the what, what the demand is, where it's going and stuff like that. And then on a more global scale, we can get into that afterwards.
2: Yeah, you know, um. Maine, um, we're a small rural state with, you know, a million people. So our, most of our products and manufacturing products in Maine, our seafood ends up going out of state just because our population Mm -hmm. is low. So, um, but we actually, we're completely focused with our production on the U S so I, you know, I, um, really looked at, at this eel opportunity as something that can happen now. And it, it couldn't have happened 20 years ago because, you know, Americans weren't eating sushi. Um, it was early two thousands that you really saw sushi start to grow, and Americans got more and more exposed to eel through through mostly sushi. However, saying that, I also have learned a lot in the last ten years that um, eel is widely eaten. You know, when I mentioned those species like Australian and, and Japanese and European, all of those areas and all of those regions of the world have a connection to this species, and um, with that, have you know dishes and traditions um that are connected to eating this fish so it's pretty cool um, as as you dive into eel and eel recipes how long they've been connected to people
0: so most of your eels are going to go to sushi market in america yep exactly
2: so so we um we've been importing uh eel um you know close to 11 million pounds annually for the last you know 10 years so we're just looking to peel off some of that market with a, a high quality, mm-hmm. local, accountable eel.
1: Well, oh, there's a better, there's a good story behind that too. And then mm-hmm. if you think of who you're selling to and consumers are asking questions and sometimes to say, yeah, well, yeah, this is a U.S.-based raised and harvested product. Sometimes that's, they like to hear that story.
0: That That's interesting too, because I feel like, I mean, Americans love stuff that's made in America, right? but we also love to poach other people's cultures and and foods and everything. So Mm. so if you, if, you know, it's really unique to be able to go to a sushi restaurant in America that says this fish is an American product when you're ordering sushi. It's just so interesting. Um, You know, like, I feel like people would, that's, that's really, that would be really um, enticing for these restaurants, I think to use as, as marketing tactics to say that, yeah, our, you're eating Japanese food that you wouldn't think would be, would come from America, but this is actually produced here in America. So that's, that's a really good selling point. That's cool. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, no, absolutely. And, and also like consumer awareness on, on quality and local is, and even acceptance of aquaculture has shifted so much in the last 10 years. And, right. and well, that, especially in yeah. Maine, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. it's huge in Maine. Yeah. The other big thing that, that we're able to really tap into is that, Eel, you know, when it comes to traceability and issues with mislabeling and, you know, mm-hmm. issues of, um, you know, poaching and uncertainty, like that's a big thing that that we um, can tap into is that, you know, there's, um, you know, no other eel that has, you know, such a um, connection to um, its fishery and its source than, than our product. Mm-hmm. So it takes take some of that uncertainty off the table.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what do you know about kind of the global market for eel? You know, what if we're looking for more international trade between some of these, because like I said, we do have people that are are from all over the world listening, and I'm sure they would love to hear a little bit about kind of the global, the eel's place in the global seafood marketplace.
2: Yeah, so um, eels are eaten widely. The, um, the largest market is, Um, between japan and china so um you know originally when this fishery and the aquaculture of eel started it was um japan was by and far the largest consumer of eel uh now it's you know between china japan and korea um you've got a lot of eel consumption uh but then you know uh across Europe, eel is consumed um less so than it used to be, um, but there's still a lot of um tradition in that, uh in some of its consumption there. Um and uh yeah, I'd say globally those are kind of really the two big, big market opportunities.
0: And are there other well, I think I know I know the answer to this, but what, what other species of eel are there in the available in the seafood marketplace? Do you know? Or are you kind of just kind of laser focused on this species.
2: Well, it's you know I pay attention to um, other angola species. So uh, you'll yeah. see um, the Japanese eel, um, the European eel, are really the the other most common eel species that are are found in the marketplace.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, uh, I don't. I want to. We're, we're approaching forty minutes here, so I don't want to go for too long. But I have a couple more things that I want to hit that I want to touch on one is just this huge mystery of eel reproduction. Mm-hmm. Because it seems it's so interesting to me that in 2023 when you, everybody just feels like they've figured everything out, the machines are taking over, you know, Skynet is coming, <laughs> and we still don't know anything about like the reproduction of this species, right? Like what is what is with the big mystery? Why is it such a mystery on um how these eels are uh how they reproduce?
2: What? I I couldn't tell you if I knew I would. that's the mystery, right? That's the whole thing. <laughs> no, it's, I think I it's was one, really
1: hoping we would solve the mystery yeah. today. <laughs> oh I, man. I honestly, killing me.
2: I, I was just talking about this the other day. I think this is one of the, um, the things that sometimes Life's great hooks, mysteries, it, it sometimes hooks people in. And it, I think it also, for me as a grower and, you know, connected to this fish more and more every day, like it leaves this, um, really massive amount of appreciation for the species and respect for the species is that despite you know all of our technology all of our knowledge all of our you know globalization that out of all 15 of these species of eel nobody has seen them breed in the wild like mm. that's pretty like special that you can evade you know our you know sponge of knowledge um and you know invasion into every part of the world so
0: uh, good for eels. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating to me. It's like it, at some point in the future someone's going to like figure it out, right? Someone's going to like crack the code and everyone in the seafood industry is just going to have this massive celebration and everyone else in the world is not going to have any idea what's going on.
1: Yeah. But,
0: um this is so interesting to me because like I said the, uh, the the second thing that I know about eels besides how delicious they are is that eels at least when I was working With BAP, we were not able to certify eel facilities because one of the requirements in the standard is that you have to be able to identify the hatchery that your larval stage, that your larval fish comes from. And there are no eel hatcheries because of this giant mystery where no one knows how they reproduce. So that was super interesting to me because I did have someone reach out to me and they were like, we want to get BAP certified. And it just brought up this whole thing of like, we can't do eels for this one reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious, kind of, I know that you guys are interested in in, in looking into kind of these certification programs for your farm and stuff. So what, what is your take on this whole, this, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. I guess not really issue, but what is your take on this situation? And not just with BAP kind of overall with these things.
2: I, I understand it's, it's a super complicated, um, it's super complicated so that is oftentimes difficult for certification bodies like i get that um you know we also kind of span i was just talking about this earlier too like we don't necessarily fit into asc we don't fit into msc because we're spanning across both of them we are connected to wild fishery but we're land-based aquaculture and you know nobody wants to take us so um but You know, one thing that we actually connected with was in Europe, um, they have done um, a lot of work with their fishery and their industry to recognize the sustainable farming practices that are happening within um, the EU countries. So they came up with what's called the Sustainable Eel Group. And it's taken kind of the bits from um, MSC and ASC and BAP and and really kind of said, all right, well, if you guys can't recognize or don't want to certify us, let's take your practices and apply it to these fisheries and aquaculture and, you know, processing organizations. So we've actually been working with the Sustainable Eel Group to bring that certification body to the United States, to our eel. So um, that was kind of how I approached this issue is like, well, all right, like, I I want a third party to recognize what we're doing um, and to really audit us and and have some sort of standard that we can, we can help build, but also if another eel farm comes in to make sure that they're following the same sort of standards as us um, to make sure that the species remains sustainable. So that was kind of how I approached it is um, well, we'll, we'll work on our own effort. Um, And, and also, you know, Talk to you know groups like the BAP certifiers on like all right like maybe we can help you connect with this group and you can get comfortable around that sourcing um, because you know the stuff that Maine's doing with their fishery is really unique um, and amongst the world and it's being looked at globally but um, not every single uh, eel fishery is the same in the world and um, and that's you know a, a fair thing to say but it's hard to evaluate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Um, all right, well, we're getting close to time, so at this point, Justin, do you have anything else that you want to bring up? That what did I miss? You you've been catching me a lot
1: today. Just giving you the eyeball look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, before I guess you asked some of your wrap up questions when we were talking about you know the marketplace and what people you know there's different types of recipes people see eel on sushi, but. What is what is your favorite eel recipe? Yeah, what are the products? <laughs> so so
2: we actually one thing when I started building mm-hmm. my business out is um, I, you know, it was hard to find someone to want to process my eels in the US. So I actually ended up having to fully integrate processing into our farm. So we okay. we fil- yeah, so we um were able to sell our eels live um to a certain kind of level of chef that wants to handle a live eel. But we also um we fillet out our products so it's a really beautiful filleted out eel butterfly that tends to go into sushi um, or to a variety of different chefs that want the freedom to kind of take that eel without the worrying about having a live eel in their kitchen and make beautiful Mm -hmm. recipes. But then we're also, um, and this is one of my favorite easy go-to things is we're smoking our eel, which is amazing. Um, This was the first way I ever had the eels that um, I grew in my basement when I first started, I smoked them and like was blown away uh, by by this fish. Um, so that's one of my favorite ways to have our our product is smoked. It's super easy. Um, mm-hmm. it's the best way to impress people at a party is you bring your eel charcuterie platter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. my other kind of favorite, especially in the winter or, or like cold rainy days is I'll take, um, shin ramen, which is that like super spicy, just little, you know, ramen that you can get at the grocery store. And I'll, um, yep. I'll take, uh, one of our fillets, uh, cook it in the toaster oven with like bachan sauce, which is a Japanese barbecue sauce that's really blown up in the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. I like I do I make my own kabiaki in the toaster oven and throw it on a bowl of ramen and it is awesome.
1: It does sound tasty. Yeah, I think I'm we hungry. have some of that Japanese barbecue sauce at our house. My wife saw it, she's like, What is this? And I was like, Oh, let's get it. It's <laughs> yeah. it's awesome. Uh, so, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. We've we worked with them I, early I, on. I think
0: we may need to we may need to take a trip up to the farm to see the system for me to see the system and for Justin to eat some smoked eel.
2: <laughs> I, I agree. Yes, probably I not too far that, away. That, yeah, Maybe no, I'll here. have
0: to get a bunch of that for our, uh, for our big 4th of July barbecue that we have. That'd be good. Oh
2: yeah. Um, well, eel on the grill too. I just did that the other day. Like, you know, you can do Bachans on, on an eel fillet in the toaster oven, but you could also just throw it on your grill and it is phenomenal. The skin crisps up and it's like, uh <sighs> Or or an air fryer, like air frying eel, boom, crispy, delicious. <laughs> it's man, this is the problem with doing at these.
0: Me. At least we did it after lunch today. Like it doesn't we even do matter now. Lunch I'm so hungry just, again. Like yeah, starving. Okay, <laughs> do you have anything else that you kind of want to get out there uh, while you have this platform? Um, anything that our listeners should that they just they need to know about eel?
2: <laughs> I oh man, there's. Well, there's there's so much there's so much it's a it's a really exciting fish. Um, you know the way that we grow our eels, um, the products that we produce. You know, one thing I will say is I had no idea how good eel could be until I grew it myself, and that's that's another thing with local production and local businesses is sometimes you don't realize the quality of product that's being brought into the U.S. is not the best um, that it could be, and that was um, hmm. eye opening for me. Is uh, just, yeah, how special with
0: fish this is. Awesome. So what would you say to someone, uh, either here in the U S or elsewhere in any other part of the world? What would you say to someone who is listen to this episode and they are excited and intrigued and they maybe want to get into eel production? What, what would you say? Like, where does someone start? What, what advice would you give them? <laughs>
2: I laugh. Cause it, so it took me 10 years to build this, this business out. And that was with, uh, of you know, I was 10 years in the industry of aquaculture. It's building and producing and farming. It It's not for the weak of heart. Um, I'm sure you guys probably talk about this a lot on your podcast, but, um, you know, farming is, you know, whether it's land based, you know, agriculture farming to farming our seafood is it's Really, really tough work um, and takes a lot of commitment. So I would anybody who's who's thinking about dabbling, I would say grow some in a fish tank in your basement first um, and m- make sure you want that lifestyle.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, again, to kind of piggyback off what Sean was asking, if any of our listeners want to if they
0: decide they want to live that lifestyle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if they if they have more questions that weren't answered during our segment here. Uh, what's the best way for someone some of that smoked eel? Yeah. What's the best way for them to get in contact with you?
2: I uh, I would say, yeah, if, if they're interested in getting some of our products and learning more, they can check out our website, which is Americanunagi.com. Um and yeah, that's a good place to start.
1: Perfect. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. So we'll make it really easy for those listeners to find all that information.
0: Yeah. And that's it. So anything else from either of you? No? I'm all good. Nope. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I'm glad, you know, it it took us a little while to kind of get this going, but we got it on the schedule. We got it on tape and I'm really, really happy that you were able to join us and tell us all about this super interesting, amazing species of fish. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, folks, that was our conversation with Sarah Rademacher from American Unagi. I hope you learned something. I know I learned a ton of things about eels that I just, I clearly didn't know anything about them, and uh, this is a super interesting and fascinating species, and I'm really hungry for some delicious eel, and I might need to convince my wife to let me get sushi for dinner tonight. So. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, clearly. And I want to remind you to make sure that you are subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen. So every time a new episode comes out, it'll automatically
1: be downloaded directly to your device. Follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact the podcast for any reason, you can do so with our online forum, which is located at globalseafood.org slash podcast.
0: That's right. Leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. It really helps us out. And we appreciate everybody that has already done that. And if you want to be more involved in the work that we do at the Global Seafood Alliance, you may want to consider becoming a member. There's a lot of really cool benefits for our members. And all of the information about GSA's membership program can be found at globalseafood.org slash membership. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye.